Well, as Blair uh, prayed already, tomorrow is a federal election, a Canada-wide election, and that is not to be uh, confused with what we're going to be talking about today, which is election. Uh, one is uh, electing members of parliament who will then choose a prime minister, and what we're going to be looking at is God's election of groups and individuals for blessing. Temporal blessing, yes, and for those who are individually elected, eternal blessing, eternal life, eternal glory. But I do think that the election is maybe helpful for we could use just to understand the doctrine of election. So we understand that tomorrow we're all going to go to the polls and we're going to cast our votes. We're going to cast our ballot for a particular member of parliament. And so what we are doing as a nation tomorrow is we are voting for, we are electing, we are choosing a parliament. And then that parliament, made up of members of parliament, will choose a prime minister. That's how it works in Canada. I don't want to get into a civics lessons. We're not choosing the prime minister. We're choosing a parliament. The parliament will then choose a prime minister. Uh, Well, that's helpful, I think, when we're thinking about the doctrine of election because the same thing is happening when God elects us, except that it doesn't matter how many votes I get. If I don't have the one vote that counts, it means nothing. So if you think of it this way, uh, election is the one vote, the one ballot that really matters is what does God say of your life? If God casts a ballot for your eternal salvation, that, that vote by God has an infinite weight to it and nothing can undo that. God is electing you, he is choosing you, he has voted for you, and nothing will undo that. If the whole world were to stand up and vote against you and God votes for you, you will be chosen unto eternal life. So we know that salvation is not democratically discerned, and yet if we were to talk about it in democratic terms, because God is an infinite person, his vote has infinite weight, Therefore, it weighs, it counts heavier than all the rest of us combined. If he chooses you, you are chosen, you are elected unto salvation. So that's really what we're looking at. This is a difficult topic for us, for the world. Uh, There's never been an age where this hasn't been difficult to understand. There's never been an age where this hasn't been difficult to embrace emotionally. And we talked about that last week. But from now till the beginning of December, we are going to be looking at what God has to say about election in Romans 9 through 11. So why don't we read this morning's passage, uh, open to Romans chapter 9. As you're looking for your place, would you please stand? Last week, what we learned was that God chooses groups That is, he chooses to do things, particular things, through different groups of people. He chooses to bless particular groups of people. And ultimately, the most famous group that God has chosen is the nation of Israel. He elected the nation of Israel for many things, to to be the recipient of his blessing, to enter into covenant with him, and to bring about the salvation of the world through their nation. We know that that ultimately happens. We talked about this last week. Through the one member of Israel, Jesus Christ the Messiah. We also learned last week that God chooses individuals. And that just because you're part of the elect group 
does not necessarily mean that you've been individually elected unto personal salvation. That's difficult for us to get our heads around. That's where we stand in the text. And before I read the text, does anyone think that that might be just a little bit unjust of God to do that, to choose some groups and not other groups, to choose some individuals and not other individuals, or perhaps even worse, that he would choose a group but not choose everyone in that group for eternal life? Does that seem unjust? Let's see what the Word of God has to say. This is the Word of God from Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a look at the doctrine of election, help us. Help us to understand it. Help us to embrace it, even while our hearts might break. For those whom we love, who have not yet responded to the gospel with faith, and thanksgiving, I pray that uh, you might elect our loved ones unto salvation and use us to reach them with the gospel. But Lord, I pray as we try to be clear about what election is and what it is not, uh, I pray that we would give you all the glory, that we would be uh, so thankful that you have chosen us, that it depends nothing on us. It's not about our will or our exertion, but you have chosen to have mercy on us. I pray for those among this elect group at South Shore Bible Church who have not yet called out in saving faith. I pray that you would be merciful, that you would not harden them, that you would bring them unto salvation. I pray for those who think that they have called out in faith but have not yet truly understood the gospel, that you would be merciful on them and don't harden their ears or their hearts, so that they might sit in a counterfeit salvation, but that you would help them to see the true gospel and be saved. I pray this. I need your help. Preach through me, in spite of me. For who am I but one that you have elected unto salvation? Not because I deserve to be, but because you are kind and good, merciful and gracious, and I thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In order to understand the doctrine of election, it is important to see where it sits in the book of Romans. So chapters 1 through 8 give us all the doctrines of salvation, 
They tell us, well, this is how you are saved. These are the things you must believe in order to be saved. You may not have a deep understanding of all of these things, but you can't reject any of this. this is, these are the doctrines of salvation, chapters 1 through 8. And then before we get to chapters 12 through 16, Paul says there's one other issue that we need to talk about, and that is the doctrine of election, that uh, be, being one of the, the saved, well, those who affirm and celebrate and worship God because of chapters 1 through 8, that, that's really about God's choice. He chooses you for salvation. He chooses to open your ears. He chooses to soften your heart. He chooses to enable you to embrace by faith the grace on offer through Jesus Christ. And we have to also understand the relationship between uh, the elect group of Israel and the elect group that is the church. And what's the relationship between those two? That's what we're going to find out before we get to chapters 12 through 16 where we say this is how then if you are a part of the elect group and you are individually elected unto salvation, you do embrace chapters 1 through 8. This is what your life should look like. So the book can be divided in chapters 1 through 12. This is right doctrine orthodoxy, and then chapters 12 through 16, right behavior, right belief, orthopraxy. Paul begins our preaching text here today with a question, and perhaps you had the same question, and I prompted you, right? I hope that after last week, if you're being honest with yourself, if you're really wrestling with the text, that, that it has to come to mind, well, that's not, that's not just, the doctrine of election just is not just. We, I thought that I believed in a God of justice, but it seems like God is not being just, that there's injustice on God's part. How could he choose some and not others? Because what we affirmed last week is that election is not fair. Election is not fair. So is God unjust? If election is not fair, is God unjust? Is election unjust? When you take a look at verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, let me just say that's not fair, but is it unjust? If you look at the biographies of both men from the material that we have given to us in Scripture, there's nothing particularly better about Jacob that would cause God to love him any more than Esau. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to say that perhaps God's love of Jacob was not just. I wouldn't conclude that, just for the record, but I would say it was not fair. It just wasn't fair that before either man was born, before either man had done either good nor bad, and this is not about God looking into their futures, but he chose them as if blind to their futures, though he wasn't blind to their futures. But the Bible says very, very clearly that this was in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. This is not about God taking a future evaluation of both men's lives and saying, well, Jacob's just a better man. He just chose one and not the other. Which is where we get the question then in verse 14. What shall we say then? 
I love it when Paul does that. Whenever Paul says, what shall we say then, or what are we to say, before he actually gets to the question that he wants to ask, what he's, what he's inviting us to do is to contemplate, to ponder, to be speechless for a moment. I don't know what to say about this. And then he supplies, inspired by God, the question that many of us have asked, I'm sure, and if you haven't asked it, what God is saying through the Scriptures is this is the question you should be asking. Is there injustice on God's part? Full stop. Don't keep reading. What we want to do as Christians is rush to the answer. But, but this is a good question worth pondering. Sit in that question for a little bit. Because if we can determine that the doctrine of election demonstrates a lack of justice, and we say that God is a God of justice, then we only have two alternatives. Either the doctrine of election is false and we can throw it away, or everything that we thought we knew about God is false and we don't even know who we're worshiping. So you see, this is, this is a big question, not to be just passed over quickly. Is there injustice on God's part? The inference here is because of election. If we affirm election, are we saying that God is not just? It's a big question. Paul eventually answers it, well, I mean, right away, but you know what I would encourage you to do, especially after the preaching of today's message? Go back to the question and just sit on it for a day or two. Because until you can come to terms with the question, you're not ready really for the answer. Far too often we as Christians just rush past the difficulties in the Bible as if they don't exist. Well, this is a real difficult point in the Bible. The doctrine of election seems, under, underline that word, to indicate that God lacks justice. And if you haven't wrestled with that, you're not ready for the people that God's going to bring into your life who are wrestling with it. You won't have compassion. You won't have any really helpful answers because you'll just rush to the answer without having thought about the answer or the how you get to the answer. But here is the answer. By no means... By no means. God forbid it. God forbid that we would ever say that the doctrine of election is unjust or that the God who elects unto salvation is unjust. This is not a matter of justice. And if, if we are stuck in the question, which I'm encouraging you to get stuck in the question, but now I also want to say, because this, I can't sit down now, maybe we should have asked this question last week and then come back this week. But what I want to say now is if your understanding of election leads you to conclude that God is unjust or that the doctrine of election is unjust, then you just haven't understood the doctrine. 
So get stuck in the question, but don't stay stuck in the question. Now I'm going to give you some of the answer, and we'll look at more of the answer next week. Uh, but let's just take a look at, well, how can Paul say that? How can he say, by no means? Now for the rest of today, we only have four verses left. And these four verses can be divided into two verses each. And they're just two illustrations to help us to understand why God is not showing injustice by electing someone to salvation and others not. So Paul has answered the question, no, no, God is not being unjust, which means no, the doctrine of election does not lack justice. Okay? Well, can you explain that to me? Like, Paul, I... Because it seems like it's unjust. He says, well, let me explain it to you this way. And he gives us two illustrations. And that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time. We're going to look at illustration number one. Then we're going to look at illustration number two. Each illustration takes two verses. Now, remember last week, before we get to the uh, illustrations, that I said that election is not fair. And I've repeated it now today. And this is really important. What's the difference between fairness and justice? How can the doctrine of election not be fair and yet it remains just? How can I say that God is not fair in electing some, but he is just to elect some? And this is where it becomes really important to see the distinction. And I think it's important that we affirm that it's not fair. Well, we also affirm that it is perfectly just. And this is where we need to see that words matter and, and exactly understanding the meaning of the words and how they're being used, that matters. What is the difference between fairness and justice? Election is not fair, but election is not unjust. I know it's awkward to do a double negative, but for the sake of the, the parallel, I think it's important. Election is not fair, but election is not unjust. Or another way of saying that, election is just. Election is not fair. What do I mean by that? When I say election is not fair, to say that God is not fair because he elects some and not others. And what I mean by that is this, that some guilty groups, like the nation of Israel, like the visible church, some guilty groups and some guilty individuals are unfairly blessed. Unfairly blessed. While other guilty groups, like the other nations, and guilty individuals, including some in the elect group, some Israelites, some in the visible church, are fairly condemned. So, so when, it ta when we're talking about the doctrine of election, it's not fair because we don't deserve the blessing. We don't deserve the salvation. That, that if, if election were to, or if, if God was to treat us fairly, then we would be condemned with everyone else who is condemned. God has not done something fair in saving us. He has given us blessing when we don't deserve blessing. But what we don't want to say is that God has stepped over the line of justice. He's not being unjust with us. It's his prerogative to bless us though we don't deserve it. 
And, and, and this is where the, the big conundrum in the Old Testament comes in, which is resolved in Romans chapter 3. It's resolved through the gospel. How is it that God was unfairly gracious with the nation of Israel? How is it that God was unfairly gracious with Abraham and David and Moses? How could he give his blessings? How could he, how could he allow these groups, this nation of Israel, and these individuals within that group and then others outside of the group like Ruth, and Rahab, how could he pass over their sins? And, and then the accusation against God is that he's not acting with justice by blessing guilty people. Do you see that? So we can actually accuse God of injustice by being so merciful. Because merciful is not in keeping with justice, which is why the cross is necessary. This is why Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die on the cross for God to establish his justice. It, it is in, on the cross where Jesus secures the unfairness of God for us. Because the justice of God to condemn sin falls on Christ in our place, and every sin will be punished. And so God purchases the opportunity for himself to be unfair by allowing the justice against all those groups to whom God is unfairly blessing. He allows the justice that should fall on the nation of Israel, the justice that should fall on the visible church, the justice that should fall on you and me to fall on Christ. There's the justice Therefore, God has opened a way for him to be unfair while maintaining his justice. It's crucial. Crucial in the doctrine of election to wrestle with that point. However, election is not unjust. We would say, well, if God could do that for some, why not do it for all? Well, that's God's choice of election. That's what we're saying. But it is not unjust because there are no innocent groups. There are no innocent individuals who are unfairly condemned. Everyone deserves condemnation. Everyone deserves uh, the justice of God, which comes in, the, in, in death, judgment, and eternal damnation. Everyone deserves that. That's justice at work. Therefore, election is not unjust, but it is unfair. And God purchased the right to be merciful by killing Christ on the cross. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the illustrations. Paul illustrates that God is not unjust by appealing to two verses in the book of Exodus. Exodus 33.19 and Exodus 9.16. Now before we look at, at these two illustrations, there's one other thing I want us to remember. At this point in Romans 9, we are not talking about the church. We are not talking about Christians. We are not talking about the relationship of the church and Israel. We are not talking about how Christians are grafted in to the elected blessings that na the nation of Israel and individual Israelites uh, received in the, under the Old Covenant. We're not talking about any of that. So, so you have to keep a clear mind by not allowing that to crowd the issue. We're not going to get to those issues for two more weeks. And, and Paul introduces that idea only in verse 24. 
okay? So if we're going to understand what Paul is saying here, we have to think in the context of Israelites. Paul's trying to establish the doctrine of election first by uh, helping us to understand the way election worked with Israel. Last week we, we said that God elected the nation of Israel and he elected particular Israelites within that nation, but not all Israelites in that nation. And that's what this question is all about. Is God unjust to elect the nation of Israel and not elect every Israelite? That's directly where we're at in the book or in the chapter. And if we crowd it with other things, then we'll start to misunderstand it. That, and I think that these three chapters are so misunderstood because we do that very thing. We want this to be about us. We want it to be about the church. And when we get to verse 24, we'll see that it is. But until we get to verse 24, let's just keep pace with Paul. Okay? So think in terms of God choosing the nation of Israel, but not choosing every Israelite in the nation. Stay with me there. Okay, illustration number one. Take a look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So this is Paul's first illustration to understand election and why it's not unjust for God to choose some but not all. Paul here, by choosing this verse, this is Exodus 33, verse 19, is alluding to a moment on Mount Sinai between Moses and God. I want you to flip back to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. And here's, let me just teach you how to read the Bible, especially the New Testament. When you see a, a citation in the New Testament that goes back to a particular verse in the Old Testament, you cannot just lift that verse out of its context. You have to go back and understand, well, what was going on in that verse and around that verse to understand why Paul is using it? So when Paul goes back to chapter 33, verse uh, 19, he's actually going back to, really, Exodus uh, 31 to 34, basically. He wants us to understand what was going on in the book of Exodus at that time and, and understand the verse in its proper context. So it, you'll notice if you're in Exodus 33, just flip back to Exodus 32. And, and what's the title over top of Exodus 32 that your Bible translators have supplied? The golden calf, right? You, you all see that? Exodus 32 is about the golden calf. What is the golden calf? idolatry so here here's god delivers now let's just zoom out even further here's god delivers uh, two million israelites from slavery after 430 years in egypt and he does it through 10 miraculous plagues he does it he does it by uh, killing the firstborn in all of egypt he t does it by taking them out and manifesting himself in a great pillar of fire in a great cloud of smoke and he parts the red sea and they walk through the red sea and and then he provides manna and water for them and quail in the wilderness and then he brings it to mount sinai and he manifests his glory on the top of the mountain and they hear his voice and they don't want to go near it and god says okay well send moses up to me and they've seen amazing things they were slaves and now they're free and they've seen God do all of this supernaturally. And then Moses goes up on the mountain because they're too afraid to go up on the mountain. And God says, that's a good idea. You stay down there. Send me Moses. And while he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights, what do they do? 
we want to worship an idol. So the high priest, who's not uh, anointed yet, but the future high priest says, give me all your gold earrings, and poof, out comes this calf. He fashions a golden calf. Not a really good start for the nation of Israel, is it? So we have to understand that is in Paul's mind when he says, you want to understand election, think about yourselves for a moment. After Exodus 32, God sends Moses down and then God calls Moses up again and says, listen, I'm going to destroy those people because those people just don't get it. I delivered them and they're already worshiping a golden calf. So let me destroy them and then I'll start over with you. That would be very tempting if you're in Moses' position. Oh, that sounds good. But what does Moses do? And this is the point. Moses reminds God of the doctrine of election. He says, God, you can't do that. Well, I'm God, Moses. Why not? I could do whatever I want. And I'm going to start over with you. And Moses says, you can't do that. You've elected this nation. You made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have declared that this this nation of people that have come from those three patriarchs are your people. The people, the leadership in Egypt knows it. Uh, the word has spread all over the region since you've delivered these two million people out of Egypt through this miraculous means that these are your people. And it will undermine the doctrine of election if you kill them and start over with me. You can't do that. You've made promises and people know it. You can't go back on your promises. And so God listens and says, okay, Moses, you're right. I won't destroy them, but I'm not going with you. I'm going to send an angel in front of you. you. You go into the promised land. I'm not going with you. I'm still angry with the people. And Moses says, you can't do that either. Because if you don't go ahead of us, who are we? I will not lead this people unless you, God, lead me. And then God agrees. And this is the context of this verse. And he says, okay, Moses, I will lead you, and I won't destroy the people. Moses is doing a pretty full day's work here. And then Moses says, in fact, God, would you please show me your glory? He's pretty bold. He's won two arguments. He's hoping for a third and that's when God says, okay, I'll show you my glory, but you can't see my face. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. Let me just read for you five verses from Exodus 33. Verses one to three, and then, uh, actually I might read a little bit more. Just listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, to your offspring I'll give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. That's the part I really wanted to read for you. I'm not going because you are a stiff-necked people, meaning they will not bow in worship and obedience to God. They're stiff, refusing. 
Um, and then he goes on, and, he sa- and that's when he has this back and forth. And Moses, if you go to uh, verse 17, Moses says, you have to lead us. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But then God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. I I wanted to read so much more of that for you, but for the sake of time, I think you get the point, right? A stiff-necked people who are worshiping false idols right after they've been delivered from slavery Moses intercedes for them and God says fine I won't destroy them but I'm not leading them you have to lead them fine I'll lead them show me your glory are you serious Moses fine I'll show you my glory but I will not show you my face that's the context here I will have compassion on whom I have compassion and mercy on whom I have mercy Paul's point is this. Neither Israel deserved the mercy of the Lord that they received, nor did Moses deserve the mercy and the compassion that he deserved. No one has the right to look on the glory of God. And yet God said, okay, yes, I won't destroy you for idolatry, although if I was being just, I would. I will lead you Although, if I was being just, I would not lead you. And I will show you my glory, though really no one should see my glory and live. And in all three of those instances, God is responding to Moses' appeal of election. You chose this people, and you chose me. And God says, you're right. Therefore, I will show mercy and compassion to the nation of Israel, by not destroying them and by leading them. And I will show mercy and compassion to you, Moses, by showing you my glory. Verse 916, go back to Romans. So then, this is Paul's point, by going back to Exodus. It depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. What Paul's trying to do for us and for Israel in this chapter is to remind them that they don't deserve to be God's elect nation. And individually, even Moses didn't deserve the mercy and compassion that he received. And yet, this is always the way that God has interacted with his elect people. They were a stiff-necked people that deserved justice, but they got mercy. Moses, though he was the, the mediator of God's relationship with Israel, did not have the right to behold God's glory. And yet, because of God's mercy, he did behold God's glory. And so what Paul is saying is this has always been the way God has interacted with his people. He has never chosen a group. He has never chosen an individual, even Moses, because the group or the individual deserved it. It's always been based on God's choice, 
God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God chose the nation of Israel. God chose Moses to be the leader of Israel at that time in their history. And therefore, it has nothing to do with human will. Abraham didn't choose himself. Isaac didn't choose himself. Jacob didn't choose himself. The two million Israelites didn't choose themselves. Moses didn't choose himself. And Moses, when, when, when faced with the justice of God, reminded God, we didn't choose ourselves, you chose us. And then the second thing, it doesn't depend on human exertion. If it did, they would have been wiped out. They were worshiping a golden calf. Moses made, really, the unaskable request. Show me your glory. Well, you can't ask that of God. Because Moses, in the request, is asking for something that is too great for him, but because of God's mercy, he says, fine, I will show you, but I'm not going to show you everything. This being the case... I think this is, gets to Paul's rhetorical point. How could Israel accuse God of being unjust in the doctrine of election? Because their very election depends on the unfairness of God. That if they had received God's justice, they wouldn't be a people. They have depended on the grace of God ever since the exodus. That's point number one. Illustration number two, take a look at verse 16. Or 17, sorry. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So illustration number two goes back to Exodus chapter 9. So just go back to Exodus chapter 9. Now this one is very fascinating. Because in this one, what we initially think is mercy and compassion on Israel, justice, and, and non-election on Pharaoh. Isn't that where you go? A hardening, a condemnation against Pharaoh. But it was interesting, when I went back and really studied this, even Pharaoh has been elected for God's purposes. There is a positive aspect of election in Pharaoh's life that Paul is trying to highlight for us here. Which, which doesn't end in salvation, but it, it does progress the salvation, the history of salvation. And, and so if I, we just go back to chapter 9, what you'll notice, what does it say at the beginning of chapter 9 in your Bibles? What's the title? The fifth plague, the livestock die, and then go down what's above the verse 8? The sixth plague, the boils, and then above verse 13? The seventh plague. Hail. So that just gives you some, some context, right? God has called Moses from Midian in the wilderness. And he says, I want you to go back to Pharaoh, and I want you to deliver my people from slavery. So Moses, after much reluctance, goes back, and he goes to Pharaoh, and he says, I have a message to you from the God of the universe. Let my people go. And what does Moses, uh, Pharaoh say? Sure, take your people. Go out. See you later. No, he says, no, under no circumstances, over my dead body, these are my slaves, you're not going to take them. And we know from further study that because the whole economy of the most powerful nation in that part of the world at that time would have collapsed. So Pharaoh says, no. 
You're not going to take my people. Well, what could have God done at that moment? Have you ever thought about this? Did God have to go through ten plagues? No, God could have just struck Pharaoh dead. Or God could have softened Pharaoh's heart and inclined him toward the God of Israel and toward the Israelite slaves and helped them to, or liberated them from slavery. But God chose neither. He didn't strike him dead, nor did he soften his heart to liberate him. Instead, he, he, uh, Pharaoh, we're told, hardened his heart, and then God allowed Pharaoh to harden his heart. And, and we find out in other places that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because God wanted the ten plagues. Why? We don't find out until the seventh plague, which is really, really fascinating. So if you go to uh, Exodus 9, verse 13, so six plagues have come and gone, and after each plague, Moses has gone to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Now take a look at chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now look at verse 15. This is the crucial part. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, what God says to Pharaoh through Moses is, you're lucky to be alive. I could have struck you dead by now. But I haven't. Verse 16. But... For this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then he goes on and says, but you're still exalting yourself above me and my people. And we, we know that after the seventh plague, Pharaoh does not let his people go. After the eighth plague, Pharaoh does not let God's people go. After the ninth plague, Pharaoh does not let God's people go. After the tenth plague, then God starts killing people. The firstborn in every house. The crown prince dies in Pharaoh's house. Then Pharaoh says, okay, go. Go. Why does Paul go back here? He goes right back to the one place in the ten plagues where God, through Moses, tells Pharaoh something positive that God is doing through Pharaoh. That God has elected Pharaoh for a purpose, and that purpose is that through Pharaoh's hardening, which is done by Pharaoh himself, and we're told in other places that God does it also, that it is through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that the whole earth may know that the God of the Hebrews is God, the only God. That's interesting because what we don't think about is that there's any good coming out of this for Pharaoh, but what we find out in Exodus chapter 9 is that God could have killed Pharaoh on day one, and he didn't. Why? Because he elected Pharaoh unto a particular job that is important for salvation history. It is through the hardening of Pharaoh and God's election of Pharaoh to persist in this world 
for such a time as this, which we don't often think about for Pharaoh, it's more Ruth, but for such, or Esther, for such a time as this, this man is being used by God for something positive. That is, it is through Pharaoh's hardening that the world learns that the God of the Hebrews is God. Isn't that something? And so if we go back to, uh, to our passage in Romans, in context, when we read verse 17, we know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God could send more plagues. God wanted to send all ten plagues because each plague is making a statement about the power of God over the power of the Egyptians' gods. It's also saying a statement about God's perseverance and loyalty to his people. And we also find out that God did not destroy Pharaoh so that God could send more plagues. What's Paul's point? Verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God hardened Pharaoh, and there's some sense in which he also had mercy on Pharaoh by not striking him dead. But the greater contrast is this, that God had mercy on the Israelite slaves and that mercy toward Israel is made known to the world through the hardening of Pharaoh. We would not know of the mercy of God toward Israel were it not for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. If, if God had just struck Pharaoh dead on day one and Israel managed to cobble together an escape from slavery, that could have been just a great coincidence of history. But the way God orchestrated it was, 10 miraculous plagues, which spoke against the power of all of the Egyptian deities, false gods, and then the miraculous exodus of parting the sea and providing in the wilderness, all of the, this spectacular exodus proves in space and time that the God of the Hebrews is not a tribal deity. He is the God of the nations who can bring low even Egypt. And so God elected Pharaoh for hardening, and he elected Israel for mercy, and we would not see the election of Israel without the hardening and the election of Pharaoh. Both mercy and hardening serve God's purposes to be known in all of the earth. Conclusion then, God is merciful with whomever he chooses. And if God is merciful with the nation of Israel, or the or if he's merciful with Moses, if he's compassionate with Israel and he's compassionate with Moses, it's not because Israel or Moses did anything to deserve mercy and compassion. It's because God elected to show it to them. He chose to show it to them. And God hardens whomever he chooses. And God hasn't made anyone who would not be hard against him hard. So is election unjust? Election is unfair, but it is not unjust. God is unfair in showing mercy and compassion to the guilty. Israel was guilty. Moses was guilty. They received mercy and compassion. But God is never unjust by hardening the guilty. 
Pharaoh already hardened himself against God. And it would have required the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God to soften him so that God permitted Pharaoh to persist in his hardness is not unjust on God's part. Moreover, God even showed mercy to Pharaoh. Do you not know that I could have struck you dead on day one, but I haven't because I'm using you for a positive purpose to showcase my mercy toward Israel to the world. We are reminded that God is unfair to us as we reflect on this. I know I said it doesn't come until verse 24, but let us just reflect on ourselves as we close this morning. God is unfair with us because he has saved us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The justice that we deserve, we do not receive because the justice that we deserve fell on Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. We are reminded that God is unfair to us because he has given us the faith that we need to unwrap the grace that he extends to us in Jesus Christ. If God were to be just with us, then we would be condemned for our own sin. Or if we, God was to be fair with us, we would be condemned for our own sin. But praise be to God that he has elected us unto salvation. Not because of anything we've done, not because we have chosen him before he chose us, but by God's election, our sin was given to Jesus Christ so that the righteousness of Jesus Christ could be given to us, and that's not fair. But oh, the glory. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these things, I, I ask for your help. Uh, for us. Help us to understand that your mercy and compassion for Israel and for Moses was never merited. It was not their choosing. It was yours. And Moses reminded you of that. And remind us also that you even elect those who are hard against you and you use them for a positive purpose to extend your glory in this earth. Pharaoh did not deserve to be used by you for your glory. And yet you glorified yourself in and through Pharaoh. God, these are hard truths for us to understand. They're even harder for us to accept. Please help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.